Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Hope you had a great weekend. Today on episode 257, we're going to talk about the return to competition from one of the greatest athletes in all of sports. Tiger Woods. This past weekend at Albany Golf Club in the Bahamas, Tiger Woods returned to competitive golf for the first time in seven months. The last time Tiger teed it up professionally was on day three of the Masters, held in early April, which Tiger would withdraw from after round three due to foot pain. The 47-year-old took to Twitter to tell his fans after withdrawing, I am disappointed to have to withdraw this morning due to re-aggravating my plantar fasciitis. Thank you to the fans and to the Masters who have shown me so much love and support. Good luck to the players today. Now, plantar fasciitis is a condition that typically causes pain with walking, most commonly at the base of the heel. This is especially true after prolonged periods of inactivity. A typical experience is significant pain upon the first few steps after getting out of bed in the morning, followed by gradual improvement with movement throughout the day. This pain affects the bottom of the foot, known as the plantar side, and specifically involves a sheet of connective tissue running along the length of the foot, known as the plantar fascia. Fasciitis implies an inflammatory problem, whereas fasciopathy encompasses a broader set of contributors to pain in this area. While Tiger tweeted that he had plantar fasciitis, less than two weeks later, he actually underwent a fusion of the subtalar joint. While I'm familiar with the anatomy itself, I do have a master's in anatomy, I've never performed the procedure or cared for an individual who recently underwent the surgery. So in preparation for this podcast, I reached out to a few orthopedic surgeon friends of mine to talk about the procedure. So the subtalar joint is located just below the ankle in the rear of the foot, also known as the hind foot. The more familiar ankle joint is created by the bottom of the tibia and fibula and their articulation with the talus bone below. As the name subtalar suggests, the joint is underneath or below the talus bone where it articulates with the calcaneus, which you're familiar with as your heel. Fusion of the bottom of the talus and the top of the calcaneus is the subtalar fusion or subtalar arthrodesis that Tiger had performed about seven months ago. Now, this procedure was done to correct post-traumatic arthritis or arthrosis in the joint, likely due to the injuries sustained in a car accident in February of 2021. Now, we don't know the extent of Tiger's injuries in that 2021 car accident, but he required multiple surgeries afterwards, and it seems likely that his intolerable foot pain that forced him to withdraw from the masters most likely resulted from those injuries. In any case, subtalar fusion is an accepted surgical procedure for foot pain attributed to the joint that are unresponsive to conservative management. So things like fractures at or near the joint, dislocation of the joint, rheumatoid arthritis affecting the joint, and deformities, those can all be treated with a subtalar fusion if they don't respond to conservative management. Now, the ankle joint itself is actually preserved, but the joint underneath is fused. So range of motion and function are generally improved after the procedure for folks suffering from post-traumatic arthritis. So while I expected Tiger to get around the golf course okay and hit some golf shots, he looked even better than I expected. To start, Albany Golf Club, where the tournament was held, was stretched to just under 7,500 yards when the Hero World Challenge came to town this past weekend. It's pretty flat, but still, Tiger was able to navigate the course on foot without any apparent difficulty or limp. This is impressive when you consider that Tiger was likely walking about 15 to 17,000 steps per day for four days in a row at this tournament. 
Studies looking into the average distance walked during rounds of golf at non-PGA golf courses show that most participants will take somewhere between 11,000 and 16,000 steps for a total of five and a half to seven miles per round. For those riding in a golf cart, the amount of steps taken and distance covered is about half that, though again, it depends on the course. Since PGA Tour courses are typically longer than regular golf courses, it's likely that Tiger was above this range each day he teed it up. And this also jives with my own personal experience, as I regularly play golf at Torrey Pines, which hosts a PGA Tour event at the start of every year, and it takes me about 16,000 steps to get around it depending on how and where I'm hitting the ball. If Torrey Pines opened up the pro tees for us mere mortals, I could see that number climbing to 18,000 steps or more, but thankfully those are for invite only, and I do not have to worry about that. In addition to Tiger being able to walk the course just fine, he also actually had to play golf at the elite level. And over the course of the tournament, Tiger found his ball in some awkward places. One time he was on the edge of a bunker, he had to stand well below it at an awkward stance. Another time he was actually in a bush, had to hit the ball backwards, and so on. In short, he was forced to hit some golf shots while he was standing awkwardly, and he did great with it. One thing that most people may not consider is the potential loss of fitness that could occur after a surgical operation that makes exercise more difficult for a period of time, like a subtalar fusion. While golf isn't viewed as one of the most physically demanding sports out there from either a strength or cardiorespiratory fitness standpoint, current data shows that low handicap golfers, that is people who are actually good at golf, average a heart rate in the 110s to 120s for the duration of the round. That's four and a half to five hours. And golfers who aren't quite as good, so the average golfers actually average a little bit lower than that, but still, it's an elevated heart rate for quite an extended period of time, especially if you're walking the course. Now, during match play in golf, the average heart rate ranges somewhere between 52 to 78% of max heart rate, which sounds a lot like aerobic activity in zones one and two. For Tiger to be able to stay in good enough shape to mentally focus while undertaking this physical challenge just seven months removed from the subtalar fusion, that's really impressive to me. But most impressive of all, however, was Tiger's strength. One way a golfer's strength is measured in a sport-specific way is how far they hit the ball with their driver. Because things like the wind, elevation, other environmental conditions, and playing surface can all affect how far the ball actually goes, the ball speed, that is how fast the ball is moving once it leaves the face of the driver, is often used to see how players stack up next to each other. The ball speed is calculated by how fast the player is swinging the club, that's their club head speed, and how well they actually hit the ball. The ball goes faster and further if it's hit in the middle of the club head than if it does if it's hit off center. And this past weekend in the Bahamas, Tiger's ball speed was regularly in the low 170 mile per hour range, and he averaged nearly 310 yards on all drives. A few times he actually creeped up near 180 miles per hour as well. To put that in perspective, the average ball speed on the PGA Tour is about 167 miles per hour. That means Tiger was well above average and nearing some of the best drivers of the golf ball in the modern era when he let it fly. Now let's take a moment to talk about this strength thing for a little bit. In golf, hitting the ball further requires a higher club head speed, which relies on high levels of muscular strength. Because club head speed correlates with carry distance and handicap, where a lower handicap is better than a higher handicap, that just means it takes you less strokes to get the ball in the hole, and you want a low handicap, it is pretty clear that strength directly influences golf performance. One look at Tiger on the course this past weekend, and you'll be a believer too. He is looking significantly bigger and more muscular than he has in the past few years. Still, there is some concern as to whether increasing muscle size from training will limit joint range of motion and hinder performance, though the data concerning golf training and golf performance show that even if getting bigger while doing strength training does reduce range of motion and limit some aspects of performance, it's far outweighed by the benefits, most notably hitting the ball further. For example, one study in college golfers showed that the improvement in 1RM squat performance correlated with both club head speed with the driver and putting performance. Another showed that performance on both push-ups and pull-ups both correlated with driver ball speed, 
and distance, highlighting the importance of strength in the chest, arms, and back. Similar relationships have been shown in a number of other exercises and tests of muscle strength, so all else being equal, being stronger is likely to give a golfer at any level the potential to hit the ball further, and that, my friends, is a competitive advantage. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. To be clear, golfers, like pretty much all other humans, need to lift weights, period. Now, golf is a sport played by about 55 million people in 206 different countries, and it's the number 10 most commonly played sport worldwide, just behind baseball. Gaining health benefits and exercise are powerful motivators for persons to play sport, including golf, especially as golfers more frequently continue to play into middle age compared to other sports like football and rugby. Most golfers are middle-aged men, and though more and more women are participating, this is a time where many people become less and less active, irrespective of gender. It's not clear whether or not golfers hit the gym more or meet the current physical activity guidelines more often than their non-golfing counterparts. However, getting better at golf might be just what the doctor ordered for getting more and more people in the gym. Training for golf tends to conjure up images of balance training on a BOSU ball, throwing a medicine ball against the wall. And I'm not sure where that started, but I can tell you that's not how I personally would introduce a golfer to exercise. To me, golfers who are new to lifting weights are just like other people who don't golf who are also new to lifting weights. So for both folks, I'd try to get them to lift weights twice per week or more, selecting a variety of exercises that train all of the major muscle groups of the body for two to three sets of 3 to 20 reps at a weight that's heavy enough to get somewhere within 4 or less reps of failure. I'd also have them perform conditioning most days of the week to accumulate 150 minutes or more of conditioning at an intensity of about RPE 4 to 5 or higher. Now, if this sounds like the beginner template, the beginner prescription, that should be very familiar because that's exactly how I would train somebody who's new to training who likes golf and somebody who's new to training who doesn't like golf. For the resistance program itself, I'd pick a two or three different variations for the squat, hinge, press, and row. Those are just movement patterns that I categorize each type of exercise into. Each of these different variations would be assigned to a different rep range, three to six reps for the primary movements to generate maximal strength, six to 12 reps for the secondary movements to develop strength stamina, and 10 to 20 reps or more for the tertiary exercises to develop strength endurance. Now, each rep range tends to generate unique adaptations. As intensity goes up, that's weight on the bar, and reps per set goes down, more and more adaptations occur with respect to maximal force production and less are devoted to energy production. These adaptations include increased rate coding of the primary movers, increased relaxation by the antagonists, increased stiffness in the muscles and tissues, etc. On the other hand, as the weight on the bar goes down, as the intensity goes down, and the reps per set go up, there are more and more adaptations afforded to energy availability and buffering metabolic byproducts associated with fatigue. This includes things like energy storage, mitochondrial density, blood flow, etc. 
All that is to say that there are different adaptations to be gleaned from each of the different rep ranges, and still, there is considerable overlap between the intensity ranges, and the net adaptation is to improve force production in the manner at which it's challenged. This improvement in force production is always some combination of neuromuscular, structural, and conditioning-specific types of adaptations, and we want all of them for our new trainee, golfer or not. The problem I see with most golf-specific training is that it is either too specific for golf, for someone who's not yet trained enough to really need or benefit from it, or for those folks who have been lifting for a while and playing golf, it's too similar to a strength program for a powerlifter or the hypertrophy program of a bodybuilder. Now, we already covered what to do for someone who is into golf but new to training, just train them like any other new lifter. Getting stronger in a variety of different movements over a variety of different rep ranges is going to build a broad base of physical development for those folks. They'll be stronger, more powerful, and healthier for it, and they'll probably play some better golf. But what about the golfer who's already been lifting weights for a while, though? What do we do with them? Their training is going to look a bit different than a standard strength conditioning program, though maybe not as different as you think. I still think that improving maximal strength in the squat, hinge, press, and row patterns is important, so we'll keep that in the program, mostly for sets of 3-6 to six reps. I do think that I'd feel more strongly about including unilateral upper body and lower body work than I would for a new trainee. Things like single arm presses or pulls for the upper body, and lunges, split squats, single leg leg press, or similar for the lower body would definitely be strongly considered. Additionally, I think that some dedicated high velocity training would be beneficial, this can run the gamut from doing squats or trap bar deadlifts as fast as they can at a weight that's light enough where they can actually go fast, or perhaps even squat or trap bar jumps. That could all work just fine, or they could even do something like plyometrics. It really just depends on the person, their current fitness level, and what sort of exercises they prefer. Finally, I do think that some rotational core work done at both high and low speeds would be beneficial too, and likely another staple of a program that I'd design for a golfer. I do think that balance training, exercises done at low velocities at weights that are too light to get close to failure, and or programming that doesn't actually get the person stronger is far too common in golf. I'd probably try to avoid all of those things, but as with all programs, tailoring the recommendations to the individual based on their needs and feedback over time is likely to be beneficial. With golfers, taking special care not to tear up their hands and wrists, balancing the training stress on their lower back and upper limbs with the competitive load, that's practice and playing golf, those are all pretty unique considerations. Most often, golfers will come out of the cold season and start playing way too much golf that their body can currently tolerate, add on to that a new exercise program, and yeah, things can get pretty spicy. Managing fatigue inside and outside the gym is a big issue in sports-specific training, even for golf. As for Tiger, he seems like he's doing pretty well with his recovery. While he finished even par after four rounds, a full 20 strokes off of the eventual winner, Scotty Shuffler, I think that if he can shake off some of the rust he's accumulated from a seven-month hiatus from competitive golf, he's going to be a force to be reckoned with at the tournaments he enters next year. All right, that's it for this episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. If you liked the episode, share it with a friend and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. 
everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.